Any missionary knows the feelings that gave rise to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. It was written out of Paul's pure love for those among whom he'd lived and taught for many months, but now about whom he'd heard disturbing reports of their faithfulness. It is a message of abiding love, the importance of obedience and responsibility, and above all, the importance and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. This week we'll be discussing 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 7. Be perfectly joined together. As always, I'd like to thank those who are sharing the podcast, either digitally or via word of mouth. Your efforts are much appreciated, and I'm very touched by all of them, Uh, especially your five-star reviews on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Uh, They help get the word out, and many people can be made aware of the podcast when those numbers reach a certain threshold. So we thank you for that. This week's question comes from Allison in Melbourne, Australia. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong, Allison. I did did once uh, answer a question from Australia in an Australian accent, but I'll spare you that pain this time. Here's Allison's question. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about Alma 40, Uh, Verse 11, I have heard some people say this scripture should not be taken literally, that our spirits are not literally taken before God when we die. I don't know what to think about it. It seems clearly written, so I tend to think that it is literal. Uh, Here's verse 11. Concerning the state of the soul between death and the resurrection, behold, it has been made known unto me by an angel that the spirits of all men, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, yea, the spirits of all men, whether they be good or evil, are taken home to that God who gave them life. What a wonderful question, Allison. I'm going to give you my opinion, and obviously I have not had an angel appear to me the way Alma did, so I'll tell you what I think happens, and you can take what my opinion is uh, for whatever it's worth. I personally believe, and the evidence I have for this is what Jesus said to the thief on the cross. He said, this day you will be with me in paradise. Now, uh, there are a couple of different interpretations of that. So, Jesus was talking about the spirit world. He wasn't saying... Because you're a thief, you're, even though you're a thief to the point where you're being executed for your crimes, because you were willing to say you believed in Jesus at the last moment of life, you'll be instantly raised to heaven. What Jesus, in my opinion, was saying was, you are going to meet with me in the world of spirits. And I think that the way, and I've, I've read enough, and this is sort of a, a controversial topic, I, I, I guess I might say. I've read enough of Uh, near-death experiences to notice that there's a common trend that people, they see a light and they experience a feeling that is very close to meeting with God. And it is uh, an all-encompassing love. Many people who are believers report meeting with Jesus. And what I think this means is that Jesus is not too busy to come to us when we die, to come and visit each individual person. He, being the Lord of time, has plenty of time to accomplish the work that every person needs of him. And he knows us all individually, and he loves us all dearly. And so at this time of great transition, if it's not too threatening, this is my personal belief and my personal opinion again, if it's not too threatening to our beliefs, so for example, if I'm an atheist and it would hurt me or it would scare me 
to meet up with God the minute I die, or it would make me feel too much shame about not having believed during this life, then God probably gives us the opportunity to be eased into that realization. However, if the dearest wish of our hearts is to see the face of Jesus and have him greet us in the afterlife, I believe that's the purpose of that. It's not the final judgment. And so I think what uh, what Alma is talking about is, number one, that meeting, and then he goes on in the next verse to talk about sort of a mini-judgment. We're separated into whatever the state of our happiness is going to be in the spirit world as we do await the final judgment. So that's my opinion of that question, uh, and I thank you for that. Um, if you if you would like more clarification, feel free to write again. For those of you wanting some clarification on any scriptural topic, or for anything in life on which you would like a scriptural answer, email the show at gt at gospeltoctrine.com, and I will uh, give your first name and your city, and I will respond at the beginning of the program. Okay, 1 Corinthians. First of all, uh, 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, in case you didn't know. There's a, there was a lost letter to the Corinthians and a reply, and so uh, we'll never know, or we probably won't ever know what was in them, and it doesn't really matter. What we call 1 Corinthians begins with, uh, first of all, Paul greeting them. So if you open your scriptures to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is greeting the Corinthians, and he says uh, the phrase, Jesus Christ our Lord, or our Lord Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus Christ, several times right in a row within within a couple of paragraphs. And uh, as I was reading to prepare for the lesson, that just struck me. So I did a little research. We have a couple of Greek words today, and the first one is kyrios, which I've mentioned before, and that is the Greek word for Lord. Now it's interesting because kyrios can mean a man, can mean a lord and master, uh, someone who is an employer or an owner of slaves, but it can also mean God. Now, in the Greek Old Testament, when we, when we read the Hebrew Old Testament, we have the, what's, what we've discussed before as the tetragrammaton, these four letters that represent the name of God, often translated as Yahweh or as Jehovah. But uh, when that word, the name of God, is translated into Greek in the Old Testament, that's the word that's used, is Kyrios. So Kyrios means God, in the same way that Yahweh does to a Greek. Now, uh, in, the, in the book of Romans, in the letter to the Romans that we just finished discussing, in chapter 10, I believe it's verse 13, uh, Paul actually quotes Joel, the book of Joel, and the entire chapter 10 of Romans, Paul is talking about the Lord Jesus, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, this, and then he, and then he quotes the book of Joel from the Old Testament, and says, whoever shall believe on the Lord shall be saved. So he says, whoever believes in Kyrios shall be saved. And all along in this chapter, he's been using the word Kyrios for Jesus. But then if you follow Paul's, uh, his reference to that scripture in Joel, you will find that in Hebrew, it says, whoever shall believe in Yahweh shall be saved. And I guess the point I wanted to bring up with all of this is, Paul was not equivocal about his belief that Jesus Christ was God, and especially the God of the Old Testament. So he does call him the Son of God. God has arranged that we should be saved through his Son, Jesus Christ. He says that, but he also calls Jesus Lord. And it's and we've also made the point in, in previous lessons that it was clear to Paul 
that Jesus was the Jehovah that he had known in the scriptures that he grew up with and loved so much. And this became clear to him when Jesus appeared to him in the cloud and when he appeared to him throughout his ministry. No one would have known better than Paul, having met Jesus at least three times, that we have accounts for in the scriptures. So uh, there are denominations in which this is a very controversial doctrine, but it shouldn't be. It wasn't controversial to Paul. He, he bears powerful testimony that Jesus is not just the man who is willing to come down and teach and heal and die for them, but he is God himself. So that's right in the first few uh, sentences, verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. A little background on Corinth. It's a city in between uh, two major ports in Greece, and as such, it was a bustling hive of commerce, travel, and so there were not only a lot of uh, different nationalities represented, but transients, and therefore it was a thriving trade city. And uh, as a res- perhaps as a result or just by nature of uh, circumstance, Corinth was, had quite a reputation as being um, what we would call a, a hub of libertinism, for lack of a better word. In fact, the word Corinthian meant somebody who is hedonistic, the way we would phrase it today. Or you Star Wars fans might be fond of saying, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy, as Obi-Wan Kenobi described Mos Eisley Spaceport. I personally, being from Las Vegas, uh, remember feeling like people judged my city when I first attended Brigham Young University. And... uh, it has, Las Vegas has an, a reputation of being Sin City. I didn't know it that way, having grown up there. I just knew it as home. But I definitely see now that people perceive it, the way it's perceived in the modern time, was very similar to how people would have perceived Corinth in ancient times. The Corinthians were especially known for their Temple of Aphrodite. Now, in case uh, you missed the lesson where we talked a little bit about Paul's exposure to the greater Roman world, the, the means of worshiping Aphrodite basically consisted of uh, engaging in sex acts with the priestesses in the temples of Aphrodite. So it was really, the temples of Aphrodite were really just brothels. And so that, and it was considered a holy act or a devotion to Aphrodite or Venus uh, if you engaged in that sort of behavior. So this is the backdrop, and Paul chose to go to Corinth in order to strike right at the heart of the sinfulness that was the Roman Empire and establish a foothold for Christ in the same place. And he lived there for 18 months and established quite a powerful church, or I should say a thriving church, made up of converts both among the Jews and the Gentiles. And what had happened was Paul had, then, then Paul begins hearing reports. And so he writes in his letter, he writes of the reports that he's hearing, I can't believe what I'm hearing about you guys, that you've actually gone back to these these former acts that you once knew. I never would have thought it because he spent, he spent long enough with them to know their spirits and to know their faithfulness. And when while Paul was there, Paul had such a strong spirit that even the entire city of Corinth wasn't going to drag him into sinfulness or make him uh, subject to those temptations. Paul even says at one point in this letter, I don't, I don't have any problems on my conscience. I know God has forgiven me. And so Paul, it was Paul lifting the entire city up, anyone who was willing to listen, rather than them dragging him down. 
And the first message that Paul has to these Corinthians is that I'm, I'm sad about what I'm hearing, that you're not united among each other, that you are, you are having prideful discussions about who converted you rather than discussions about who your Savior is. And so if you uh, remember, we talked briefly about a missionary who came out of Alexandria and who made his way of his own accord. He was taught by the word only, and, and then he found teachers as he arrived in Greece. His name was Apollos. So Paul came through, but then when, after Paul had left, Apollos came through, and Peter also went to Greece. And so some people are claiming, Paul converted me, Apollos converted me, Peter converted me. And Paul is saying, are you kidding me? This is not how the gospel works. Uh, God doesn't care about such things. I'm reminded of a story that a friend told me. He recently moved into a, uh, a ward um, in Utah, and part of the ward, the ward is long and skinny. You know, it's a geographical region, and part of the ward is up in a, in a more wealthy area, and the homes there are very, very affluent. It's a very, very affluent neighborhood. And then there's a long, skinny part that comes down, and he says, and I live in the poorest part of the ward. And his home is very nice. It's, it, you, you might describe it as a modest home only because it's, it has those other homes in its ward, but it's, it's a perfectly lovely home. And yet he said he's felt when he's gone to church, oh, you live on the west side of the ward, and there's a little condescension to it. And, uh, you know, he and I have discussed how how interesting that is, that people feel the need to delineate in such a way. So we're not exempt, even today, from this sort of attitude, which is, we are this kind of member of the church. Or, for example, uh, if someone were to brag that a general authority had taught them or had done their temple sealing, uh, this is the very same attitude, which is that somehow I have greater access to God because of the circumstances of my life. And Paul, Paul's attitude, I'm going to read you a verse that explains perfectly Paul's attitude about this. Christ has been divided into groups. Was it Paul who died on the cross for you? Were you baptized as Paul's disciples? And uh, so, obviously, that was a, a satirical question. And then uh, in verse 17, that was verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 17, Paul says, Christ didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to tell the good news and to tell it without using the language of human wisdom in order to make sure that Christ's death on the cross is not robbed of its power. So that is a strong rebuke that if our attitude about our comparison, the way we we stack up to other people is such that we're willing to to create a hierarchy of spirituality, then in that very process, we are robbing the crucifixion of its power. The crucifixion is what raises us from the dead. The crucifixion is where Christ perfected his, is, was where finally God left him alone to trod the wine press alone. That's the power of the crucifixion. And so the idea that there is something we can do that would rob it of its power is really shocking. And so it's very strong language from Paul saying that that's the choice you're making when you're comparing yourself to others. We'll talk more about comparison in chapter 4 as well. And then Paul gets in, starting in verse 18, Paul gets into talking about the wisdom of God, the difference between the wis- what wisdom is to God and what wisdom is to man. So uh, I'm going to read a few verses here. This is from the Good News Translation, just to be a little more clear uh, on our audio 
but I recommend any translation, including King James. These are all wonderful translations. Uh, the message, verse 18, the message about Christ's death on the cross is nonsense to those who are being lost. But for us who are being saved, it is God's power. The scripture says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and set aside the understanding of the scholars. So then, where does that leave the wise or the scholars or the skillful, de- skillful debaters of this world? God has shown that this world's wisdom is foolishness. End of quote. That's verse 18 through 20. And I wish I could uh, just read this entire chapter because it's all wonderful, but the point is the Jews are looking for miracles and the Greeks are looking for wisdom. And by wisdom, he means uh, greater understanding, logic. So they're looking to be convinced. The Jews want to be convinced by manifestations of heavenly power. And the the Greeks want to be convinced by manifestations of overwhelming logic. But in either case, neither of them want to make a choice to believe in God. So in verse 22, uh, I'll read again, Jews want miracles for proof, Greeks look for wisdom. As for us, we proclaim the crucified Christ, a message that is offensive to the Jews and nonsense to the Gentiles. But for those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, this message is Christ, who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he's saying that Christ confronts this desire for miracles and for wisdom, and it takes something that is weak and foolishness and offensive and foolishness and makes it power and wisdom. I don't feel equal to convey... Uh, how profound this message is, but I will say this, just to get your attention, I think there is perhaps one other concept in the scriptures that, that rivals this one in importance, but just one, and that would be that, the, that charity is the pure love of Christ, and without charity we are nothing. So we read that, Paul. that's also written by Paul, we'll read it later in the Corinthians, we also read it in Mormon's writings, in the book of Moroni, that we need to pray unto God with all the power of our hearts for the gift of his pure love, so that when we meet with him, he can recognize us if we have this love within us. So that would be that would be the only other message I can think of, the only other concept that would be more important to get from the scriptures than this one, which is to understand the importance of weakness and the and the the way that God sees weakness and strength relative to each other. Uh, this is this is driven home again and again in both the epistles of Paul and throughout the Book of Mormon. And so one thing that I would recommend to anybody who is intrigued by what I'm saying is take your gospel library app and just search for the word weakness and write down what you find in the Book of Mormon and throughout the New Testament. Some of them have to do with genuine weakness, but quite often it's someone who is willing to be weak or to be perceived weak in the cause of Christ. And then do the same thing again with foolishness. Uh, And I'll share with you at the end of the lesson today some of my favorites or a couple of my favorites. There's no time. There there are many of them. But it is, in my opinion, one of the most profitable lines of scriptural inquiry that you could undertake, is to understand how God feels about weakness. And a couple more verses from the end of chapter 1 to make it clear how Paul thinks God feels about it. In verse 27, God purposely chose what the world considers nonsense in order to shame the wise, and he chose what the world considers weak in order to shame the powerful. 
This echoes the, the same concept in verse 21. For God, in his wisdom, made it impossible for people to know him by means of their own wisdom. Instead, by means of the so-called foolish message we preach, God decided to save those who believe. So it's not that God made a mistake and he now, because he can't depend on the people who were wise and strong, he has to, as a last resort, go to the weak and foolish. God has, in his wisdom, made it impossible for man's wisdom to lead them to God. And the question of why God would work this way is, would be such a profitable question for all of us. Why would God want me to be weak? Why would God want me to be foolish before I could find him? The answers to that will not only give us an insight into the mind of God, but also into how he wants us to look at our fellow man. All right, moving on to chapter 2. Here we get a little clue about the point of the weakness of God, which is, or the weakness of those who can choose to believe in God. So uh, Paul says, when I came to you, my friends, to preach God's secret truth, this is chapter 2, verse 1, I did not use big words and great learning, for while I was with you, I made up my mind to forget everything except Jesus Christ, and especially his death on the cross. So when I came to you, I was weak and trembled all over with fear, and my teaching and message were not delivered with skillful, skillful words of human wisdom but with convincing proof of the power of God's Spirit. Your faith, then, does not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So the idea of this chapter is that the things of God are hidden to those who are wise. They'll hear them, but they'll think it's so foolish. And hidden within that message that appears to be foolishness, it's not as if the words are not spoken in the ears of all. But the more wise you are, the more foolish this message appears. And uh, think about what that message is. A Jew that called himself the king of the Jews, but not really, and then he died, and now he's alive. And I need to be saved from what? From worshiping Aphrodite, from the kind of, uh, the kind of behavior that I really enjoy participating in, or perhaps worshiping Zeus or worshiping Mercury. And why would I want to give all of that up? That seems foolishness to me. Why would I want to be generous when I could be out for my own good at all times? And of course, there's much more to it than that. But that's the, that's the surface meaning of what it, what it means for that message of wisdom to be foolishness. Uh, Paul goes on in verse 6 of uh, chapter 2. Yet I do proclaim a message of wisdom to those who are spiritually mature. But it is not the wisdom that belongs to this world or to the powers that rule this world, powers that are losing their power. The wisdom I proclaim is God's secret wisdom, which is hidden from human beings, but which he had already chosen for our glory even before the world was made. And when he says human beings, okay, now understand, Paul comes from a Hebrew background. He's talking about the same natural man. He's talking about Adam. Mankind, the same natural man that he discussed at great length, or that he would discuss, sorry, at great length in the epistle to the Romans, but that we have already analyzed. Uh, so this, this idea that there's a natural part of us that's an enemy to God, and we have to make a decision as to which of those natures we're going to follow. Uh, there's an important parallel that Paul is going to draw here, so that's why I bring it to your attention. And then uh, in verse 9, Paul says, I hath not seen, this is, he's quoting from Isaiah, I hath not seen, neither hath ear heard. It hasn't even entered into anyone's heart. Nobody can imagine 
the things that God has prepared for them that love him. So the point is, first of all, the obvious meaning of the scripture, which is we have to believe that God will reward us. But secondly, nobody can imagine it. Nobody can, it's, it's secret in the sense that it's unexpected. There's no way that you would beforehand get, be able to guess what form God's wisdom would take before somebody came to you and proclaimed the word and you felt the spirit bear witness of its truth. You simply would not anticipate the message of Jesus Christ as our Savior. And that's why it's secret knowledge. You have to be willing to humble yourself and put aside those things that you think you know in order to receive the true depth of, Jesus, of the love and the message that Jesus has for us. So in chapter 3, Paul takes that idea and continues to expand it, going back to the idea that some people think that they were converted by a more powerful messenger, and that makes them a little bit better. He's saying, I started out when I was teaching you, I started out as if you were children, spiritual children. And I don't think of myself as somebody who is more worthy of God's praise. What I see is that I'm going to plant a seed, somebody else is going to water the seed, and eventually a plant will grow. But does that make me anything special because I put a seed in the ground? Isn't it God that makes the plant grow? The fact that water got on it or the seed got in the ground somehow doesn't really mean anything. And so you are the plant, he's saying to everyone. And then he, so that's one metaphor. He starts with this plant metaphor. And in so doing, he's downplaying the importance of anybody who could ever be called of God, saying, we don't, Apollos and I, I'm pretty sure Apollos would agree with me on this one, we don't boast in our own strength. We boast in the fact that we have the greatest Savior that anyone could possibly imagine in Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to boast about. So you're the plant of God. And then he shifts right away and says, you're the building of God. Now that word building, oikodome, can mean just a simple building. It can mean a simple construction, but it can also mean uh, a preparation of people. It can mean a kind of constructive criticism or instruction that would prepare us to receive God to dwell within us. And in fact, this is one of its very powerful meanings. To use this word for a building is to evoke that imagery into someone's head, that they are being prepared. If you're a building of God, you're being prepared to be the dwelling place of God. God is constructing you, much as the, the, that famous metaphor by C.S. Lewis where he says, you think that you just want a simple remodel. If you're, if you're a home that uh, you want a redecoration, you want maybe want some paint, and then pretty soon it's painful, and they're taking out a wall here, and then the whole thing is coming down and being put up afresh. God didn't want you to stay the cottage that you were. He wants a mansion. He's planning to move in himself. He is very much, he was, and this is, he was not ignorant of this. He was a language student, C.S. Lewis. He understood the meaning. This is the very meaning of what oikodome is, is God's preparing us to be a habitation for the Spirit. And if all of this talk about a building where God lives is making you think of the temple, then you're one step ahead of Paul. He gets there. He talks about how we're God's building, and then uh, once people are kind of understanding that concept and on board with it, then he says in verse 16, we're now in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, surely you know that you're God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you. God will destroy anyone who destroys God's temple, for God's temple is holy, and you yourselves are his temple. And so in Jewish belief, the temple was the meeting place. 
they understood that there was some small overlap. If you or if you took if you know what a Venn diagram is, these two circles that discuss different populations or uh, different ideas, where they overlap is that small little football shape where the two circles meet, and that overlap or that shared space between heaven and earth. In Jewish thought, was always they didn't have Venn diagrams, but they did understand the idea of an overlap between heaven and earth, and it was always the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem. And one of the revolutionary teachings of Jesus and his apostles was that, in the same way that that temple, that temple was really just a symbol of a more powerful overlap, which was that overlap between God and Adam, or or the natural man. The shared space between those two populations or those two ideas, those two concepts, was Jesus Christ. And now Paul is saying, you also, you get to be the called of God. In chapter 1, Paul talked about, there are those for whom this is foolishness, but those who are called of God, both among the Jews and the Gentiles, it is power and understanding. And so you, as the called of God, those who have chosen to listen to this message, you get to partake in this shared space. And in fact, you get to become it. And once, once you're declared, once you are dedicated as a temple and declared shared space between God and man, then Christ lives within you. And you no longer have the luxury of building carelessly because now you know the importance of the building that is going up on that cornerstone. So this is all very powerful imagery coming together. So uh, let's let's learn a couple more Greek words. Oikodome was was the last one, a building. Now we want to learn the words for the Greek words for temple. One is naos, N-A-O-S, and that is the building that houses the holy place and the holy of holies. That's the naos, and the hieron is the actual temple complex is in its entirety. So H-I-E-R-O-N, hieron is the is the bigger complex that houses the smaller naus in the middle. And all of the Jews were invited into the Hieron, but only the priests could enter the naus. And what what P- Paul is saying is that we are the naus. We are that very focus. We are the dead center of the temple of God. Not only that all Jews can come into, but only the priests. We actually have the privilege that only those who had to receive this this calling could heretofore accomplish, which was to represent man to God. We can, each of us, arrive at the, at the mercy seat of God within ourselves through Jesus Christ. So by talking about us as the temple of God, this is the lesson that Paul is teaching, is how powerful it is for us to worship Jesus. It's like we have a personal temple within us, and Jesus is the one who carries the blood of the Lamb between the altar and God rather than us having to go to Jerusalem and be represented by a priest symbolically, Jesus accomplishes this literally. Also at the end of chapter 3, Paul says in verse 18, you should not fool yourself. If any of you think that you are wise by this world's standards, you should become a fool in in order to be really wise. For what this world considers to be wisdom is nonsense in God's sight. So not only is God's secret knowledge not only is that foolishness in the world's sight, but man's wisdom is foolishness in God's sight. Uh, as the scripture says, God traps the wise in their cleverness. And another scripture says, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are worthless. No one then should boast about what human beings can do.
And now he introduces this idea that we belong to God, and he'll, and he'll develop it further later. But uh, still continuing in verse 21 of chapter 3, actually everything belongs to you. So one of the claims that the Corinthians had been making is, God has saved us, so now uh, we're free, we're truly free. And then this had been the message, right? And they're deciding to pervert that message and say, we're truly free, why shouldn't we continue to worship in the temple of Aphrodite? Why shouldn't we continue in whatever behavior seems good to us because Christ has made us free? And here's Paul saying, yes, actually everything does belong to you. You are free. Paul, Apollos, Peter, this world, life and death, they all belong to you, the present and the future, all these are yours. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. So you might be free, but you don't have the freedom to choose what kind of worship that Christ prefers and what kind of behavior will elevate you to the level where he can truly bless you. That's chapter 3. And in chapter 4, Paul continues the ideas in chapter 3, one of which is, the apostles don't compare themselves to each other. Uh, I was reminded of a particular talk uh, from 2007 by Jeffrey R. Holland in the April conference called The Tongue of Angels, and he talks about comparing one daughter to another. You know, if you tell one daughter she's the pretty one and one daughter she's the smart one, they actually won't hear that. What they'll hear is, oh, I'm, I'm not pretty and I'm not smart. And he's saying... Satan is so good at using this idea that none of us are enough that by whenever we engage in comparisons, what we're doing is his work. We are actually promoting this idea that we are less than, that Satan wants us to take in whenever he can get us to do it. And Paul drives this idea home by talking about how humble the life of a, and how lowly the life of an apostle would be perceived as from the viewpoint of the world. We're the garbage of the world. We're the, we're the outcasts. We're the ones who are uh, beaten and kicked and ridiculed and spit upon, and that we do all on purpose because we want to have this status of being the weak things of the world because we don't want to engage in comparison. The only person worthy of praise is Christ. So that's chapters one through four, and Paul has really hit home the idea that we have to humble ourselves before God and be unified in Christ or else we aren't truly following him. And now in chapters five through seven, he's, he's going to sternly rebuke them for the ways in which they're being sexually immoral. And so these three chapters are among the most powerful morality chapters in all of scripture. And the inciting incident to this is that Paul has heard, as I mentioned, that some people are going back to the temple of Aphrodite, and some, and one man has even married his father's widow and his own stepmother, which is forbidden by the law of Moses. And this is Jerry Springer stuff, right? These are, these are things that not even the Gentiles, not even the worshipers of Aphrodite outside of the church engage in. And look at you all. And so he says, look, I don't, I'm not saying that you have to separate yourselves wholly from anyone who believes that sexual sin is right. I just don't want you to have that sort of teaching in the church because what happens is people come into the church and they begin to behave this way and then in order to stay in good fellowship, they have to preach that it's right. They have to say that it's okay. Uh, as I mentioned in the last chapter, they have to talk about how we are free now in Christ and all of these things are permitted unto us. 
And you've got to separate yourselves from that kind of doctrine. You, you shouldn't even sit down to eat with somebody who's willing to try to fill your head with that because if you should believe something like that, it will do you more harm than being around 100 million people who've never accepted the gospel. So this, uh, in fact, this, this chapter seems on a surface level to contradict certain teachings from the Sermon on the Mount, right? Because Jesus said, Judge not that ye be not judged. For with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again, right? So uh, I actually leave that for you as a question uh, to think about. How is this different, or how is Paul keeping the teachings of Jesus, even as he's saying, and I'll read these last two verses in uh, chapter 5. After all, it is none of my business to judge outsiders. God will judge them. But should you not judge the members of your own fellowship? As the scripture says, remove the evil person from your group. So in, in other words, it's not okay to leave this, this evil doctrine is like a poison. It's not okay to leave it within the fellowship of God. Now in chapter 6, Paul deals with some earthly matters. First of all, Christians suing each other. And he's saying, isn't it a tragedy that believers, those, these people, all of you, at one time, you were all living here in Jerusalem, not all of you, but the, the beginnings of your community. You were living here in Jerusalem, and you had all things in common. You had actually given all of your worldly goods into one common pot, and you were supporting each other and loving each other and being there for each other. And now here you are. Not only are you not agreeing with each other in every respect and letting other people have the benefit of the doubt, but you're even taking each other to an unbeliever as a magistrate to, to judge between you. Don't you think that there's somebody wise enough in the church who could judge this, right? And this, keep in mind, this is before the advent of modern jurisprudence, and this really was wise counsel for the Christians in Corinth, because the concepts upon which our own jurisprudence is built are actually the, con the very concepts that are found in Ju Judeo-Christian tradition, and not within Greek tradition. So Paul was saying, you're going to find a fairer judge if you stay within the church, somebody who actually judges you according to the teachings of Christ. But wouldn't it be even better if you didn't have to disagree at all, if you said, wow, somebody's taking advantage of me, I'm going to do my best to forgive. As Jesus said, if somebody takes your coat, give them your cloak also, right? Um, that's a difficult teaching. That is one of Jesus's more controversial and actually really hard to hear doctrines. But Paul is saying, can't we listen to what Jesus has, has told us and try to get along with each other, even when it's painful? And then in keeping with the, the idea of earthly concerns, Paul goes right back into sexual immorality. And in verse 12, here's a quote. Someone will say, I'm allowed to do anything. Yes, but not everything is good for you. I could say that I'm allowed to do anything, but I'm not going to let anything make me its slave. Someone else will say, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. Yes, but God will put an end to both. The body is not to be used for sexual immorality, but to serve the Lord. The Lord provides for the body. God raised the Lord from death, and he will also raise us by his power. So he's, he's pointing out the fact that this body that we have this is not a new doctrine, I'm sure you've all heard it, that this body we have is eternal. This body is going to be resurrected, so the way we treat it will be with us forever. You know, in verse 15 of, of chapter 6, you know that your bodies are parts of the body of Christ. Shall I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of the body of a prostitute? 
impossible. Or perhaps you didn't know that the man who joins his body to a prostitute becomes physically one with her. The scripture says quite plainly, the two will become one body. But he who joins himself to the Lord becomes spiritually one with him. So this is the idea of shared space, right? We have become one with the Lord. We were baptized unto his baptism. We, come, we become one spirit with God. We are spiritually joined. So we become one with God in that way. And then the act of sexual union joins two people as one flesh. And so when we engage in sexual immorality after joining ourselves spiritually with Christ, we are actually polluting the spirit of God himself. This is his whole point. And he says the, the, the end result is this, avoid immorality. Any other sin a man commits does not affect his body, but the man who is guilty of sexual immorality sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who is given to you by God? You do not belong to yourselves, but to God. He bought you for a price, so use your bodies for God's glory. So when he was talking about how, yes, you have all things that, are, that belong to you, but you belong to Christ. So Christ bought us with his crucifixion, and now we see him tying in all these concepts that he's brought in from chapter 1. Are we going to make the crucifixion to no effect? No. So the point is Christ bought us with his crucifixion, and now our bodies belong to him, and we become one with him in the Spirit, and we want to be this shared space. We want to exist in this overlap between God and man if we can, and we can through Jesus Christ because we become one with him when we receive the Holy Ghost. And now, sexual union, rather than just separating us from God, it does more than that. It actually pollutes the Spirit of Christ, if such a thing were possible. What a terrible result. Now, chapter 7 continues along those lines, and I'm not going to make much about chapter 7 except to say that chapter 7 is the justification for a lot of the doctrines of priestly celibacy that you'll find in, most notably, in, we- in the Western world, the Catholic Church. So there are a number of verses in here that could be interpreted to mean uh, that being married is actually less de- desirable than being single. And the reason that I'm not going to spend too much time talking about it is because Paul himself was almost certainly married. And it's, it is, it is, in my opinion, painfully clear that Paul didn't actually believe what this appears to be saying. Uh, Paul was either a member of or a close aide of the Sanhedrin, and one of their requirements for membership was to be married. So if he was just an aide or a, an assistant to the Sanhedrin, they still would not have respected him. They wouldn't have given him that letter to take to Damascus had he not been a married man. This was one of the commandments in Jewish law for, for a man of Paul's age, and he was a very widely respected Jew before he was a Christian. Paul would definitely have been married. Spencer W. Kimball has said that the, the things that appear to be Paul talking against marriage are actually Paul talking against marriage to those who are called on a mission. And uh, that that interpretation does hold up on a lot of these verses, but not all of them. So there are certain verses where he's obviously talking about just people who are living uh, at home, and they're trying to make up their mind whether they're going to get married or not. But I actually see this question as kind of boring, because 
in, there are places, there are other places in Paul's letters where he talks very specifically that it is very desirable to get married. In fact, God expects nothing less of us. And so if you think this is an interesting question and you're concerned with it and you would like to have more of my informa- or my take on it, then uh, you can email me at the show and, and I'll, I'll do a little more research around it. But uh, I, don't, I don't feel a lot of controversy on this question within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And also, we have thousands of years now of results. If, if you could consider the different Christian churches that exist in the world as a kind of experiment, we, ha- we now have tons of data as to what happens when priests marry and when they don't marry. And in my opinion, the results are in that when priests don't marry, awful things happen both to the priests and to the believers. Not in every case, but in enough that this does not seem to be the doctrine of God just from purely looking at the data. And then obviously from looking at the doctrine, from seeing how Paul must have lived his life, and from hearing his uh, teachings in other places, he very much was a man who believed in marriage. And if he wasn't a married man when he wrote the epistle to the Corinthians, he had been and was possibly a widower. Where I would prefer to spend the rest of our time, and we don't have a ton more, is mentioning once again Paul's idea of weakness and how it can become strength. So uh, a lot of this is looking forward to our lesson we'll have in the second epistle to the Corinthians chapter 12, where where Paul talks about how he has a thorn in the flesh that he prays for God to remove from him. And the answer is eventually, I need you to have this weakness. It's important for me, for you to have it. It's important for you to have this weakness. The scripture that I want to point out today is 2 Nephi chapter 9 verse 42. And I'll read that to you quickly. Uh, To me, this, so this is right after the one that talks about how um, the how clever Satan is that he convinces us that when we're learned, we're wise. And later on in the chapter, uh, Nephi says this, verse 42, Whoso knocketh to him will he open, and the wise and the learned and they that are rich and who are puffed up because of their learning and their wisdom and their riches, yea, they are they whom he despiseth. And save they shall cast these things away and consider themselves fools before God and come down in the depths of humility. He will not open unto them. Now this is interesting to me because it very much follows a Jewish poetic structure. There are three groups of three here, and so to, to me it's just a powerful verse. It's worth a very close analysis, so I encourage you to read Second uh, Nephi chapter 9 verse 42. But the interesting, another interesting thing is, whoso knocketh, he will open unto him. And then at the end of the verse, he says, if you, do the, if you don't do these things, he won't open unto you. In other words, this verse is teaching you what it means to knock. Why is that important? So now I want to bring up one other verse, and that's 2 Nephi chapter 32, verse 4. So uh, th- in this verse, Nephi says, Now, after I have spoken these words, if ye cannot understand them, it will, because, it will be because ye ask not, neither do ye knock. Wherefore, ye are not brought into the light, but must perish in the dark. It seems in this verse that asking and knocking are two different things. And how do we find out the difference? Where do we go to learn what Nephi thinks the difference is between asking God for understanding and knocking for understanding? And the, the place that I found the answer 
is in 2 Nephi 9.42. It teaches us what it means to knock. So we already know what it means to ask, and now we know what it means to knock. If we do either of those things, then God can reveal unto us his understanding. This is, this is the point of having weakness, is to get us to be able to knock. And the point of God opening unto us is him revealing this secret knowledge that Paul talks about, right? The knowledge that is right in front of our faces, and yet its significance is totally lost on us until God opens unto us the Spirit. And then all of a sudden, it all makes sense, and we see, wow, how come I couldn't see God's wisdom before this? It's because it was foolishness unto you until you understood it with the Spirit. That is the point of weakness. It's one of the most powerful things that God has ever done. And um, in case I fail to mention it already in this lesson, my favorite verse of scripture is Ether 12:27. So that is, of course, the most powerful expression of this idea, in my opinion, which is that God gave us these weaknesses. We don't have to feel ashamed when we're weak. We can recognize that these are a gift unto us. As Paul said, God gave me a thorn in the flesh, right? And so God says, my grace is sufficient. You have the thorn in the flesh, but my grace is covering that. Please use it for its intended purpose, which is to show you that my wisdom is actually greater than the wisdom of man. And how do we choose between the wisdom of man and the wisdom of God? The power of God and the weakness of man. And the, 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 the answer is simple. It is just that simple, a choice. We, get, we are poised right on the knife's edge, and God sees to it that we are pulled equally in both directions. And so there we are on that knife's edge, and, and it's a very narrow margin of choice. There's not much to affect our agency in either direction. We simply get to choose. Which kind of world do we want to live in? One where God loves us and is all-powerful, and where he has all wisdom and knowledge, or one where we're left to our own wisdom, understanding? which is foolishness and weakness unto God. I pray that the fact that you're listening to this podcast means that you're willing to be pulled in the direction of God. You're making the choice, even now as we all study the scriptures together, to receive the wisdom of God and understand your own foolishness for the strength that it is. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.